You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Now let's open our Bibles to our scripture reading for this morning. Read in the first place from Romans chapter 7. These readings are in connection with Lord's Day 44 of the Heidelberg Catechism. Romans 7, we begin reading at verse 1. Listen to God's word. Do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to men who know the law, that the law has authority over a man only as long as he lives? For example, by law, a married woman is bound to her husband as long as he is alive. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. So then, if she marries another man while her husband is still alive, she is called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is released from that law and is not an adulteress, even though she marries another man. So, my brothers, you also died to the law through the body of Christ, that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit to God. For when we were controlled by the sinful nature... The sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our bodies, so that we bore fruit for death. But now, by dying to what once bound us, we have been released from the law, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit, and not in the old way of the written code. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. Indeed, I would not have known what sin was except through the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, Do not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of covetous desire. For apart from law, sin is dead. Once I was alive apart from law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me, and through the commandment put me to death. So then the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. Did that which is good then become death to me? By no means. But in order that sin might be recognized as sin... It produced death in me through what was good, so that through the commandment, sin might become utterly sinful. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do... I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. I know that nothing good lives in me that is in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For what I do is not the good I want to do. No, the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want to do, It is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. So I find this law at work. 
When I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within my members. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, but in the sinful nature a slave to the law of sin. We're also going to read from Philippians. We'll read the whole of chapter 3 and then also verse 1. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those men who do evil, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who worship by the Spirit of God, who glory in Christ Jesus and who put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reasons for such confidence." If anyone else thinks he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for legalistic righteousness, faultless. But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more... I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. I want to know Christ and the power of His resurrection, and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained all this, or have already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, Forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. All of us who are mature should take such a view of things. And if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. Only let us live up to what we have already attained. Join with others in following my example, brothers. And take note of those who live according to the pattern we gave you. For, as I have often told you before, and now say again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach. And their glory is in their shame. Their mind is unearthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who, by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Therefore, my brothers, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, 
That is how you should stand firm in the Lord, dear friends. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's now read Lord's Day 44 of the Heidelberg Catechism. First question, what does the Tenth Commandment require of us? That not even the slightest thought or desire contrary to any of God's commandments should ever arise in our heart. Rather, with all our heart, we should always hate all sin and delight in all righteousness. But can those converted to God keep these commandments perfectly? No. In this life, even the holiest have only a small beginning of this obedience. Nevertheless, with earnest purpose, they do begin to live not only according to some, but to all the commandments of God. If in this life no one can keep the Ten Commandments perfectly, why does God have them preached so strictly? First, so that throughout our life we may more and more become aware of our sinful nature, and therefore seek more eagerly the forgiveness of sins and righteousness in Christ. Second, so that while praying to God for the grace of the Holy Spirit, we may never stop striving to be renewed more and more after God's image, until after this life we reach the goal of perfection. Beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus, when you're young, and I'm sure many of us have had this experience or are having this experience, time often seems to drag on, except when it's summer holidays, of course. But otherwise, when you're young, it seems like it's going to take forever to become an adult. Day after day, you go to school, you keep going through the same routine, and it feels like your life is stuck in slow motion. You become restless, and you, you long for the time when you're an adult, when you can be your own person, you can make your own choices, you can have a certain amount of freedom. But for today, life is just taking forever. And you feel restless. And if, if we think about it, we can find a, a similar feeling of restlessness in the Christian life too. Every day we face a struggle against sinful desires that wage war against our souls. Every day the challenge is there to put the sinful nature to death, to live out of our new nature. And all of this, if we're serious about it, makes us feel restless. We long for the rest, for the rest that remains for God's people in Christ. We yearn for the day that we will be glorified, for the day that we will be perfected. The time is coming when we will reach the full measure of maturity, when we will reach spiritual adulthood. But that time is not yet today. And so we feel a measure of spiritual restlessness now, the preaching of the Ten Commandments also plays a role in this. When we learn about the Tenth Commandment, we get a summary of God, what God wants from us. He wants our entire heart. He wants every desire that we have, every thought that we have. He wants us to be totally committed only to Him. So the commandment about coveting is therefore not just about coveting as such, desiring what belongs to your neighbor. It's about what lives in our hearts. And that's what God's law in general is concerned about in the first place. 
And when we're faced with that, then we become restless because we know the truth. We're not yet at the point of maturity. Each and every one of us is on a journey of growth and transformation. And the preaching of the law is a way that God leads us further on this journey. And so our theme for this morning is this, God uses the preaching of the law to lead believers to maturity. And this happens, first of all, through the working of humility, and second, through the working of holiness. First of all, humility. Let's first of all get a definition. What is humility? Well, as you know, humility is the opposite of pride. When someone is humble, they look at themselves the way that they should. They have a realistic understanding, a realistic evaluation of who they are. Romans 12, verse 3, we read these words, For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you. Well, as believers, we accept God's word about who we are and we strive to think of ourselves accordingly. We look around us in the world, pride is a virtue. Pride is a virtue in our culture, in our society. But in the church, it has to be different. In Christian ethics, it is, pride has always been and still remains one of the seven deadly sins. Believers are called to humility. So when we come to the Tenth Commandment, we're going to be realistic about our shortcomings. The Catechism says that not even the slightest thought or desire, contrary to any of God's commandments, should ever arise in our heart. Well, that's a, a very weighty demand. Who can do this? When we look at ourselves realistically, we know that it is impossible to keep this consistently. After all, it speaks about the slightest thought or desire. That means I cannot even have a sliver of a doubt. That means my thoughts during the worship service cannot wander even for a second. I can't start thinking about other things while the congregation is praying to the Lord. I always have to be filled with joy when it's time to go to church. There can't be the slightest bit of disrespect for parents or office bearers or anybody else in authority over us. There can't even be a hint of an unchaste thought in our minds. And so on. And if I slip in any of this, even for a second, I have broken the Tenth Commandment and so also I have broken the whole law of God. So indeed, who can do this? And as we think about this, we come to realize that the catechism is right. In this life, even the holiest have only a small beginning of this obedience that God asks of us. And you note that there are believers who are considered to be more holy than others. But even the ones in whom Christ has worked a greater degree of sanctification, even these have made but a small beginning. Even the holiest people 
have every reason to be humble before God, to be humble before their neighbors. Even the holiest have no reason at all to be proud. Well, if that's the case, then why does God want the Ten Commandments preached so strictly? That's question answer, question 15, 115. Now, the question assumes that God does want the Ten Commandments preached strictly. Well, that's a, a fair assumption, I think, considering what we see happening in the New Testament. All you have to do is open the New Testament to the very first book, and you get five chapters in, and you get to the Sermon on the Mount. You can see that when the Lord Jesus came, He didn't come to put the Ten Commandments away. He actually reinforced them. He actually showed their true depth, their true meaning. And so, yes, it is fair to say that God wants the Ten Commandments to be preached strictly, rigorously, and clearly. But now, why? Well, the Catechism gives us two reasons. Let's look at the first reason right now, and then later on we'll deal with the second one. The first has to do with humility. That we may more and more become aware of our sinful nature, and therefore seek more eagerly the forgiveness of sins and righteousness in Christ. In other words, God wants the ten words preached so that we are realistic about ourselves, that we are realistic about who we are. We look in the mirror of His law. Right? The law is like a mirror. Apart from the work of the Holy Spirit in us, that picture in that mirror looking back at us is not pretty. The demand of the law is plain. The Lord Jesus said it in, in Matthew 5, verse 48. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. And when we look honestly at our lives, we know that we are far from perfect. Just think about the whole matter of desires and thoughts mentioned by the Tenth Commandment, and then we don't have to look very far. We can see our sinful nature. Paul saw it in himself, too. And remember, this is the Apostle Paul, generally considered to be among the holiest of God's people. But he felt that inner struggle within himself. He knew there was a conflict between his old nature and his new nature in Christ. Though in principle he was a new creation, the fact remained that he still struggled. He struggled with sinful desires belonging to an old nature, or an old man, as he sometimes calls it. And this led him to make that statement in Romans 7.24, What a wretched man that I am! Who will rescue me from this body of death? Now, someone might say, as many people have, that when Paul said this in Romans 7, he wasn't talking about his present condition, the way he was right now. Some say that he's writing about what he was like when he was under the law as a Jew. Paul was a wretched man, was a wretched man, before he was converted to Christ. But now things are different for Paul. He's a, a new creation. He doesn't have an old nature and a new nature, but he has only one nature, a renewed nature in Christ. However, that won't stand up to a, a careful reading of Romans 7. In the first part of Romans 7, 
Paul does talk about being under the law. He does write about a life apart from Christ, a Jewish life. All that's true. But in verse 14, we find a shift. Paul begins using the present tense before he had been using the past tense. Now he uses the present. He says, I am unspiritual. He didn't say, I was unspiritual. He says, I do not understand what I do. He didn't say, I, I, I don't understand what I was doing or I did not understand what I was doing. And in verse 21, so I find this law at work. Not, I found this law working at, in me in the past. And finally, in verse 24, the verse we're looking at here especially, Paul says, what a wretched man that I am. Not, I was a wretched man or what a wretched man that I was. Paul is speaking about a present reality. The reality is that in God's sight, he has been made right through faith in Christ. But the reality is also that life in this world means life in a body of death. A body that still has an old nature, an old man. Now, not that that old nature consistently controls us. Paul says that it doesn't. But it's still there, and there's still a struggle against it. As you may know, the, the book of Romans was crucial to bring Martin Luther to understand how to be right with God. Before he even posted the 95 Theses in 1517, Martin Luther wrote a commentary on the book of Romans. And on this part of Romans 7, he wrote this, and I'll, I'll quote it for you. It's a little bit of a long quote, but I think it's, it's worthwhile. Luther said, You see, it is just so as I said before. Believers are at the same time sinners while they are righteous. They are righteous because they believe in Christ, whose righteousness covers them and is imputed to them. But they are sinners inasmuch as they do not fulfill the law and still have sinful lusts. They are like sick people who are being treated by a doctor. They are really sick, but hope and are beginning to get or be made well. They are about to regain their health. Such patients would suffer the greatest harm by arrogantly claiming to be well, for they would suffer a relapse that is worse than their first illness. That's the end of the quote. That was Martin Luther on Romans 7. You know, it's not just Romans 7 that leads us to this way of thinking, as if you know we only have this one passage. We hear similar notes coming from Paul in Ephesians 4, 23-24. Paul talks there about the ongoing process of putting off the old man or the old nature and putting on the new man or new nature. It's a process. And we see something similar in Philippians 3. Listen to what it says there in the, in the first part of verse 12. Not that I have already obtained all this or have already been made perfect. Now you might hear that and think, well, we can go along with that quite easily. Everybody sins. But, but hold on for one second. Because what does it say in Hebrews 10.14? We, we heard that passage earlier in the worship service. You remember what it said there in verse 14? Because by one sacrifice, He, that's Christ, has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Now Hebrews 10.14 
uses the same verb that Paul uses in Philippians 3 verse 12. Paul says that he has not been made perfect. Hebrews 10 says that all believers have already been made perfect. Which is it? Doesn't the Bible contradict itself here? Is it perfect or not perfect? Well, you know what? It's not an either or. It's a both and. There's two different points of view here. From the point of view of our justification, that's the point of view in Hebrews 10, verse 14. From the point of view of our justification, we have been made perfect. But from the point of view of our sanctification, that's the point of view in Romans 7 and Philippians 3, from that point of view, we are far from being perfect. We can even say that we are wretched, miserable sinners when we look at it from that point of view. Why is that? Because we still have a sinful nature. A sinful nature with which we have to struggle. We have to be honest. We have to be humble about that fact. You know, the the Puritan Thomas Watson, he put it very well, very colorfully. He said, Though the saints have their golden graces, yet they have their leprous spots. Seeing sin has made us vile, let it make us humble. Seeing it has taken away our beauty, let it take away our pride. Oh, look upon your boils and ulcers and be humble. Christians are never more lovely in God's eyes than when they are loathsome in their own. Those sins which humble shall never damn. When we're honest, we're humble in that way, then we're driven increasingly to Christ. That's part of Christian growth and maturity. In the words of the Catechism, we seek more eagerly the forgiveness of sins and righteousness in Christ. Christ is increasingly everything to us. He increases and we decrease. We more and more desire Him to wipe away our remaining sinfulness, our remaining weakness. We yearn for His righteousness to cover our unrighteousness. We long to be with Him so that we can be fully redeemed from this body of death. When that happens, we'll no longer be restless, no longer struggling. We will be fully at rest. No more struggles, no more conflicts within ourselves. The battle will be over. And we can rest in Christ as those who have finally been made perfect in every sense of the word, from every point of view. But till then, the struggle is there. And so also the call to holiness remains. And that's also a part of the way that God leads us to maturity. That's our second point this morning. The Tenth Commandment has a negative side which can lead us to humility but also has a positive side intended to lead us to holiness. Catechism explains it this way. Rather that we should always hate all sin with all our heart and delight in all righteousness. I wonder if we ever think about hate as being a part of the Christian life. It seems like we're often led to believe that the Christian life is only about love. 
We love God. We love our neighbor. But there's also a healthy hatred that believers are called to. Now think about it. After all, we're called to be imitators of God in certain respects. Well, it's clear from Scripture that God hates sin. And He hates Satan. Think of Proverbs 6, 16-19. There are six things the Lord hates, seven that are detestable to Him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked schemes, feet that are quick to rush into evil, a false witness that pours out lies, and a man who stirs up dissension among brothers. God hates those things. So should we. And then there's Proverbs 8.13. To fear the Lord is to hate evil. I hate pride and arrogance, evil behavior, and perverse speech. Now this hatred for evil is part of living with earnest purpose, not only according to some, but to all the commandments of God. Even though we have only a small beginning of obedience with the Holy Spirit, God gives us earnest purpose. He gives us a sincere desire to please Him and to live in His ways. Our lives are more and more determined by the desires and the purposes of the new nature that we have in Christ. And that leads us to the second reason for the strict preaching of the Ten Commandments. God wants us to be zealous for good deeds. He not only wants us to be realistic about who we are in this life, He also desires that we be passionate about serving Him in His ways. And that drives us to pray to Him. This pushes us to depend on Him, to lean on Him and the power of the Holy Spirit. And so when we hear the strict preaching of the Ten Commandments, we're reminded of the reason why we were redeemed by Christ. We were bought with His blood so that in the words of 1 Peter 2, verse 9, we would declare the praises of Him who called us out of darkness into His wonderful light. You could also think of Ephesians 1, 4, which speaks about God's choosing us. And remember, it was not because we were holy and blameless, but so that we would be holy and blameless. When we hear the strict preaching of the Ten Commandments, we're driven to God more and more, seeking His face, seeking His strength. We desire to be made more and more into His image. We want people to look at us and to be able to see something of what God is like. This happens more and more in this life as we grow as believers. But the process is not complete until the day we're taken into glory by the Lord or when the Lord Jesus comes back, whichever happens first. Let's be clear that this is not, first of all, about external things. Holiness is not about keeping up appearances. That would be a superficial, unbiblical way of looking at holiness. Oh, the zeal for God engendered by the strict preaching of the Ten Commandments, it begins in the heart. It begins in the affections of the heart. The Lord taught us that all kinds of things well up from our hearts. Well, that includes deeds that are good in God's sight. Your inward attitudes 
and thoughts are where it all begins. That's why the Catechism speaks about being zealous. Because what is zeal? Zeal is passion. Being zealous means you're on fire for something. Believers are called to be on fire for holiness. We're to be passionate about the things that God desires. This is the attitude that Paul had, and you can read about that in Philippians 3. And in Philippians 3, Paul uses an image there of a, a race, a road race, running. With every nerve and with every muscle straining, working as hard as he can, he's pushing ahead to finish the race with passionate zeal. That's what he means in, in verse 14 and verse 13. Forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. That wasn't about earning something from God. Rather, Paul is talking there about the process of sanctification. Paul, just like all believers, was a work in progress. He knows God's grace in Jesus Christ. But he also knows God's holiness and the call for his people to be holy too, to reflect God's image. And that's why he eagerly, zealously, with every nerve and muscle straining, pushes forward in his Christian life. And the strict preaching of the Ten Commandments ought to do the same for us. Every time we go through this catechism, we're reminded that the life of a Christian is a journey. It's a journey with ups and downs. And actually, think about it. The Christian life is like a yo-yo. But more than that, it's a yo-yo being held by a man going up on an escalator. Christians are people who are growing in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ even through the ups and downs of daily life, even when you can't see it clearly, there's growth happening. When we hear the preaching of the law, we're led to pray for this process of growth to keep on going. We're restless for it. We pray for movement in our lives. The Christian life is not static. It's dynamic. And it's in this praying for that movement, that we see the connection between prayer and sanctification. Prayer is about what happens in our lives after we've been saved through the grace of God in Christ. Prayer is about God changing us. Prayer is about God transforming our lives so that we become more and more the people we're redeemed to be. And of course, in the coming weeks, we're going to have more to say on that. We're going to learn more about the character of prayer, the content of prayer. So I'm going to leave it at that for now. Now now we're at the end of the section on the Ten Commandments. It's helpful to look back and remember that this is all in the third part. This is all in the third section of the Catechism, the section on our thankfulness. And we remember also that this thankfulness of ours that shows itself in the way that we think, with what lives in our hearts, with what also lives in our our lives, our actions. This thankfulness is Christ working in us. Our service to God, just like our salvation, is a matter of grace. 
Remember Lord's Day 32? Because Christ, the question there is, why must we do good works? Right? Because Christ, having redeemed us by his blood, also renews us by his spirit. Notice the way the answer doesn't right away focus on us, it focuses on Christ. Christ is the one doing these good works through us. Our good works are Christ's good works in us. And so when we make a beginning of holiness in our lives, we take none of the credit for ourselves. Rather, our hearts are lifted upward. And we take every opportunity we can to point to our Savior. He's the one who's doing the work. And so He receives more praise and more honor through us. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.